Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. On March 15, 1938, Adolf Hitler addressed 250,000 Austrians in Vienna, announcing the end of the Austrian state. Close by on that same day, Nazis entered the apartment of Dr. Sigmund Freud and his family. They were literally bought off when first his wife Martha offered them cash, and then daughter Anna Freud opened a safe and gave them the equivalent of $140. At this point, the stern figure of Sigmund Freud himself suddenly appeared, writes my guest Andrew Nagorski, glaring at the intruders without saying anything. They addressed him as Herr Professor and backed out of the apartment. After they left, Freud inquired how much money they had seized. He wryly remarked, I have never taken so much for a single visit. It seems astonishing that the author of Civilization and its Discontents, who seemed to have so few illusions about mankind and its aggressive cruelty, should have been there to witness the Anschluss. It's even more astonishing that even after the Anschluss, he continued to insist that his life was safe and that it was possible to ride out the storm. But a circle of friends and disciples not only persuaded Freud to leave, but then arranged his emigration to England, where he lived the last 16 months of his life. Andrew Nagorski was bureau chief for Newsweek in Hong Kong, Moscow, Rome, Bonn, Warsaw, and Berlin. Author of seven books, his latest book is Saving Freud, which is the subject of our conversation today. Andrew Nagorski, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. So I was thinking a lot about this after finishing the book, and I realized that sometime in the 1990s, I probably could pinpoint the year and the month, Sigmund Freud came off his pedestal as quickly and as completely in many ways as Stalin and Lenin did across Eastern Europe. Uh, In many ways, it was an even more surprising demolition. Uh, I looked back and I found the uh, controversy over the 1996 Library of Congress exhibit, where suddenly there are lots of people who are protesting that whether or not Freud should even have an exhibit in the Library of Congress. 1996, that was earlier than I imagined. So in 2022, we have to do something that no one would have done in 1992. We have to explain how big Freud was. Um because at the moment when this kind of story in, in where I start the story during the Anschluss, Freud is big. And by 1990, in a way, he was even bigger. So we have to explain that now. I almost have to explain that to myself. So could, well, you, could you undertake that? Sure. I mean, first of all, I did not undertake a, a, a book to explain all of Freud's theories and, 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 and uh, I'm, I don't have the credentials for that, but I I wanted to tell a story which intrigued me, which is the one you alluded to. Why did Freud stick around for so long? How did he get out and so forth? But as I began to explore that story, I realized I really have to tell a story, reintroduce this man who, as you say, was probably the best known figure in the beginning, for in much in the pre World War II Europe, between mm-hmm. in the early early twenties through through the war until until his death in thirty nine, 
And there's a scene actually in, in the book where I describe it's, it's from a novel by John Gunther, who is a very famous American journalist who wrote all these books inside Europe, inside Austria, inside France, in which he describes Freud coming into a room during a party. And it's as if the, the waters are parting and everyone going and saying, oh, that's Freud, that's Freud. Uh, he was a huge figure. And I, I think that today, of course, as you allude to in the 90s, there are a lot of revisionists thinking about Freud. A lot of you know, people in the whole field of psychology say, oh, no, no, I'm not a Freudian. But you go back and you see this was the man who really started this whole movement. The whole, the fact that people, whether they sit on a couch or, or, or lie, lie, lie somewhere and, you know, and, and, and tell their stories and try to get at what's going on in their subconscious how were they motivated by things that happened in their childhood, by their sexuality, things they don't acknowledge? All that started with Freud. And how he came to that, I found as fascinating a story as the story of why he then seemed to be blind, blindsided to events that to all of us looking in retrospect, we say, oh, we would have understood what was happening in Europe then. Mm -hmm. We would have understood. And, you know, I've written several books about this period. The historical backdrop for me is fairly familiar of Germany, Austria, Poland, Russia, what was going on in that period. But the cast of characters here is quite different. And, the, mm -hmm. and, and what the, the issues they're dealing with First of all, Freud himself, but then he has this group of followers who are each of each of them is fascinating. And so I, I think the fact I don't frankly get too worked up about the fact that people say, oh, now I wouldn't give Freud as a credit for this or that or the other. If you look at the history of 20th century thought, uh, Freud is huge and he still he remain, remains huge. You have a great scene where. I realized two of the first, well, certainly in the 1930s, there are two preeminent celebrity intellectuals, and both of them were Central European Jews, German-speaking yeah. Jews, Albert Einstein and Sigmund Freud. Yes. Um, and that's that's where Freud is. He is, uh, it's interesting that because he did not, well, we'll talk about him as a Viennese, but because he stayed within the Ringstrasse so much of his life, Viennese treated his celebrity very different than if he had been going like Einstein back and forth to New York, where people would have been asking him about the World Series or who would, what do you think of the best heavyweight boxer or things like that. So his celebrity, but he was still a titanic, the only word for it is celebrity and figure in, in the world at the time. Yeah. And, you know, it, I, I also described they, Freud and Einstein had two personal meetings. And that's also described in the meeting in the book. You know, Einstein was the younger man, and yes. Freud went to Berlin to visit uh, some of his family there. And at that point, Einstein comes to see him, and and it's really to see the interaction between the two. And then later, Einstein asks Freud to participate in a in a discussion about war. Hey, remember, this is the interwar period. There's the whole disillusionment after the the slaughters of World War One, and and there there is a whole movement. How do we explain war, and how do we deal get rid of war? And and many people are calling for 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 pacifism, for renouncing war. 
And Freud, on balance, is much more realistic. And this, this, this dialogue, he's flattered to be asked to be part of this dialogue with Einstein. But in the end, he said nothing much came of it. And, and, it, and, it was, and that I think he was not as surprised by that as Einstein was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah a, a mentor of mine 20 years ago used to say, how can you so develop yourself that when an evil happens, you're able to recognize it for what it is? Yeah. I, and what I love about your choice of this topic is here we have a man, as I said in the intro, very few illusions about humanity who might not use the cat. Yeah. Does he use the category of evil? Not sure, but he, he, he believes that people do evil things. Oh, and yeah. the question, and the question is, you know, here we have he, to see how he reacts as, as to use the title of a previous book of yours, house Hitler land is building up all around him, like, you know, stalagmites growing from the floor of the cave, sort of like oh, it's rising up all around you. How do you recognize that? With yeah. Freud is a very interesting, he's like the, the, the uber case of that, of, of, of that ability or inability to do it. He is. And yeah, what I ascribe that to after having done all this research and, 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 and studying him is, uh, there's a tendency in all of us, I think, when we're suddenly caught in a swirl of events, we tend to make the assumption, well, our world is not going to change that much. Stuff around us may change, but I'm still, I've got this and this, that priority. I've got my family. I've got my work. I've got a comfortable job or whatever it is. And Freud was so intent on developing psychoanalysis, not just dealing with his patients, but the whole theory and practice of psychoanalysis. He was spreading this all over the world but by example, that, that he wanted to convince himself that somehow this stuff going on in Germany will not affect Austria. Now, of course, in Mein Kampf, Hitler immediately said, basically, I'm taking over Austria. And he, of course, knew all that, but he still thought, well, maybe Austria can stay out of it. And even if there is fascism in Austria, so long as it's not directly applied and controlled by Hitler, it may be a little less, less uh, ominous than what, what's happening next door. And I think part of that is his upbringing he grew up in the Habsburg Empire when the Austro-Hungarian Empire was this multilingual, multicultural setting. And yes, there was plenty of anti-Semitism. There was plenty of other uh, ethnic and nationalist feuds. But Vienna in, at the turn of the century was a pretty tolerant place in many ways where Jews prospered, did very well in terms of in academia, the arts, uh, the law. And while, again, they knew, always knew the anti-Semitism was there, but there was a feeling you can make it here and you can do the things you want to do. You can accomplish a lot. And that's where that was. And, and the idea that all that would, would end uh, and, and by this political movement was something he did not want to acknowledge. And, and it was also compounded by the fact that for much of the last part of his life, from 1923 on specifically, he was battling cancer of his jaw. 
This yeah. was the result of his chronic cigar smoking. Let's let's get to that in a second. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about Vienna a little bit more. As we were saying, I, we were chatting before we started recording. You were never bureau chief in Vienna, but you obviously have the Vienna bug, uh, and there's a certain way in which being a Viennese. If Freud grew up in Vienna, yes, it, it, yes, from it, age four. He was born yeah. in what is now the Czech Republic, but he grew up in Vienna. It was so all he is, so he is congenitally Viennese. Oh yeah, and there's a, a weird, a very strange way in which this extraordinary cosmopolitan city, certainly at the time, much more cosmopolitan than Berlin. A lot more different names in the phone book, uh, a lot more languages with German as the first language, um, and yet it's very cosmopolitan, and yet it's also strangely insular. Um, it's easy to exist in the Vien. It, as reading the book, I thought of how it's easy to exist in this this sort of Viennese cosmos, which is surrounded maybe by the Vienna woods, and not really pay attention to what goes on beyond beyond it. Yes, absolutely, and and you, yeah, and also, uh, Freud was known as a revolutionary thinker for his time, but yes. he was a very conventional, by his own admission, bourgeois. Life, lifestyle man. He, yes. he, he, he had his, uh, the one apartment where he, he raised his family, had six, six kids. He, he had a very rigid schedule about when he got up, when, when the barber would come in and trim his beard, when, what, who made his clothes. Uh, and, then, and, and then he'd have his walks around the Ringstrasse in the, the famous horseshoe-like walk around Vienna his favorite cafes he went to, that Viennese life, where even when I was going in and out of Vienna a lot in the 80s and 90s, I remember after a while you began, you went into the uh, a cafe like the Café Landmann, which was his most famous ca cafe, which he still, still exists today. It's a wonderful place. And you saw familiar faces and so forth. So you, you could create this bubble of a life that worked very well for you and that's the that's the Vienna which which uh, Freud lived and breathed. We should probably talk about cigars here too, because the cigars are part of the his bourgeoisie as well. Um, I'm thinking there are three f most famous cigar smokers in history: are Ulysses S. Grant, Sigmund Freud, and Winston Churchill. Yes. Um, the difference being that I believe Churchill never smoked a cigar beyond halfway, and his gardener would pick them up and chop them up to be pipe tobacco. <laughs> um, Grant and Freud, however, both die of cancer of, well, of the throat, in Grant's case, cancer of the jaw in Freud's case. And they are psychotically competitive cigar smokers. They could have smoked cigars for the Olympic team if there was such a sport. Oh, oh yes. And, you know, if Freud said even when he began to be diagnosed and had his first operation uh, and then had multiple operations, and he said basically to his to his personal doctor, I need a cigar to think, to work. And as his personal doctor, who became his close friend, too, said, well, there was never a time Freud was not thinking and working and writing. And yeah. therefore, you know, the, the, the implement without the cigar, he felt he couldn't do that. So he was literally, I, I think, I mean, I, I guess I've read, the, I don't know if you said this or I've read this elsewhere, he would light cigars one off the other, basically. I mean, he was he he was always smoking a cigar. So like Grant, we're talking something on the order of 20 to 30 cigars a day. 
Probably. I did begin to cut down when he, after he, he got, he very obviously got the cancer and had, uh, but every time he, he, he writes about this in his personal correspondence, which by the way, is just massive. He wrote letters yeah. every day to everyone. He responded to everyone, which was also great resources for, for me as a writer. But he would talk about his struggle with it to cut down the number. And he did cut down at times the bit, the number, but he he just found it almost impossible yeah. to 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 wean himself from the addiction. Just a couple of the mentions you made of it. Just to imagine the number of boxes he's buying a week. Yes, <laughs> it's crazy. Well, uh, so that regular supplier just downstairs practically from his yeah yeah yeah. Um, so he's a Viennese. He's bourgeois. He's also a radical. And I believe he comes from a rabbinical family. Is that isn't that right? No, 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 no. That, that his wife did. Martha. His wife did. Yeah, okay. She came from northern Germany, from Ham, the Hamburg area, and her 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 uh, grandfather had been the grand rabbi of Hamburg. And in fact, when they met, this was a, a little bit of a source of contention because uh, Freud's family was vaguely observant, but not very religious. Uh-huh. Uh, Martha Freud's family was very religious, and and one of the things she was nervous about was was that Freud was not only not observant, he was definitely against religion. He never rejected his Judaism; he considered it an essential part of his identity. But he never accepted religion, and he was he's a confirmed atheist. Mm-hmm. What's very interesting about Freud, I and mean, this is actually turns out to be really important to the book and how he survived, how he's is how he leaves Vienna, is that from the very beginning of his theory of psychoanalysis, he seems to have a theory also of intellectual influence and of sort of intellectual institution building. So it's always important to him from a very early age to have basically be a rabbi with disciples. Is that am I exaggerating? I mean, he's that's from the very beginning. He's going to this. It's not important enough to have a great theory. The theory must spread. It must have disciples, and they must have evangelists. Absolutely. And you put your finger on it. And that's another part of the story I found fascinating was who he was looking for disciples. And at first, when he when he started, he really developed the, the ideas that became what we know as psychology and psychoanalysis today. Uh, today, or at least the, the predecessor to today's version. Uh, most of those people were in Vienna or in Budapest or just in a pretty tight circle. And most of them, by the way, were Jews uh, in, in, in his own intellectual circles. But then he also very consciously wanted to expand beyond that and wanted, he was conscious that if this became what was seen as a "Quote unquote Jewish science," and he it uses was, that phrase before Hitler or the before Nazis Hitler. Or... Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he's conscious of anti-Semitism, and very early on, he 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 is very eager to find new recruits elsewhere. And one of the earliest recruits, and this is this is still before World War One, is Carl Jung, who was a Swiss, uh, as they say, very Teutonic, uh, very different kind of. Uh, of background, uh, but they, well, they, and, and at first, uh, Freud thinks he'll be his heir apparent. He already, even when he was, what is it, pretty young, he was thinking. Yeah, we, we need 
We need to underline that because that's that's very interesting. The whole the whole the love affair with Jung and the falling out all before the First World War. Yeah, that happens when Freud is still a young man. It's long before his diagnosis of cancer. Yes. Why, why is he so interested? And from his early forties, really, right? To about, have uh, yeah, early to mid forties. He wants an heir apparent. So, what's the reason for that? I think Freud was well, but not only. I think it was. It's quite evident in in, in the remarks he made and the letters he wrote. He was always preoccupied with death, yeah. and he always was trying to calculate how old he might be when he dies, and he would go through elaborate. Elaborate calculations based on on other members of the family and so forth. And at one point, he convinced himself that he was going to die at the age of 61, 61 and a half, to be precise. And then you know, later on, of course, when that passes, he then makes other calculations and uh, based on when his older brother or his stepbrother died and his dad died in his early 80s. But he is very focused on yeah that he's got a, a set amount of time on this earth and and he is very focused on a, you know really spreading as you say the gospel of this new discipline called psych- psychology and psychoanalysis and so he uh, from that early fr- from the time he's already in his late 40s he's looking first for Carl Jung who's who's considerably younger and then when they have a falling out then, then, then he looks for others. But it's interesting that one of the attractions of Carl Jung was that he was not Jewish, right? And he is he is big and blonde and blue eyed yeah. and big chest, and he looks like a big tall Swiss mercenary. Yeah. Um, there's always the danger, of course, of the charismatic teacher intellectual to find a successor who will somehow go from being disciple to being leader, mm-hmm. and that always puts them in the same position as the dog who chases cars. You, you might, you might find one, you might catch one. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of how it happens to Jung. I mean, Adler doesn't work out either, yes. but he does find a successor to Jung, which who's often overlooked, but yeah. is important to the story. Alfred Ernest Jones, who if he's even better than Swiss, he's Welsh. Yes. I mean, so yeah. he's, he's even less Jewish yeah. Oh, um, yeah. And, yeah. and less Teutonic. Yeah. Um, so, could you explain because it's uh, what his importance to the to yeah. to Freud and to psychoanalysis? Yeah. Well, at the Ernest Jones is first of all he's not Teutonic. He's not the big guy. He's literally about five foot four, or, yeah. or, or maybe even a little shorter and, and bald and, and bald, but very charismatic, and notoriously involved with many many women who find him very attractive, and. He Jones is is as a young man begins studying Freud's reading Freud and gets so entranced by Freud's teachings that at a time at the turn of the century when when uh, many of of the things Freud Freud wrote were still not translated from German to English or other languages, he taught himself enough German to to really learn learn German, and he first goes to to visit Carl Jung. Who introduces? Who then makes the introduction to Freud? And then when Jung Jung fall, fall, has his dispute with Freud, Jones really emerges as the face of the of psychoanalysis in the English speaking world 
representing Freud's views. And he's, he is very ex extremely industrious, writes tremendous amount, is very good at reaching out. At a certain point, he goes to Canada and then the United States, partly goes to Canada because he has various scandals going on in, in, in England where he's accused of, of, let us say, things that in today's parlance, let us say, would not be considered very acceptable, even the hint of scandal of involvement with some of his patients and whether what whether or not it was true or, or, or made up it was, it was but freud largely dismisses that because he thinks this is part of doing business as a, a, a psychoanalyst you have this this idea of transparent transference that patients often uh transfer their emotions to their analyst and then suddenly, and if they, for instance, Im imagine having a love affair with somebody else that doesn't happen, imagine it with their analyst, and all sorts of complications happen. Uh, so, but 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 Jones sets up a printing house, which which begins to translate and publish Freud's works. He helps uh, helps uh, helps Freud on his one visit to the United States. In, and this is right before World War One as well, uh, and, and and which which introduces Freudian ideas in a much more uh, organized way to the United States, and and Jones becomes later the the head of what's called the International Psychoanalytical Association, which Jung had done initially, so he becomes really, and then after Freud's death, he becomes his premier biographer. And he he's really an ideas manager. He's like he's one of these academics who's able to organize. Oh yeah, uh, and and that's really important to Freud that there be a, a a very effective head of this international psychoanalytical association. This is part of the plan for you know spreading this intellectual virus yeah. uh, through through the world. Yeah, right, um, right. And the fact also again that he is not Jewish is something that Freud likes, and he explains some some of the the Jewish. Uh, disciples, as it were, in, in, in Vienna and Budapest and other places say, why, why do you do this? He said, well, it works to all of our advantage to see this as this should not be seen as the provident, as a movement of only Jews. Uh, let's be realistic about the world. Uh, we've got, we've got, we've got to have other voices. So we're going to move through parts of this circle of people rapid fire and try to leave a little bit of mystery about, at the end about how Freud does get out. So we're just going to talk about some of the personalities involved because they're so fascinating, as you've said, and, um, and they indicate so much of how Freud's theories spread out to the world as well. So uh, the second person after Ernest Jones would be Anna Freud, who in, in many ways seems to me probably the most important person in her father's life in his last 15 years. And, and certainly even more important than Ernest Jones for spreading his legacy after his death. So yes. she's his daughter. Uh, she's his, his Liebling, his favorite. And um, what, what's, what about her early life indicates that she will have this sort of position as his, the staff of his old age. Yes, well, she and, and it's a position that goes on for a long time. Yeah. Anna, I, first of all, Freud had six children. Anna was the youngest, and so as in many families, the youngest often gets special 
affection. <laughs> she got uh, to drive a car to high school, probably. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But you know, by the time Freud is really coming into the world as a major figure, his other children have all moved out. Mm-hmm. They, all, most of them, have, they've married, they've had children, they've had, they some some are living right nearby. But Anna, first of all, decides to become a teacher, but wants to learn from Freud. And even as a when she's still in her teens, she sits in on some of those sessions, what are they call these Wednesday sessions. You describe her as a 14-year-old sitting on a stool in the corner, which I imagine this literally smoke-filled room. Oh, as, oh yeah, smoke-filled, definitely. <laughs> oh, as everyone is engaged in speaking and they're sort of new vocabulary. They're sort of classic German making up words as you go along descriptions of what's happening inside the human, inside the brain. Yes. Um, Yes. And she's, and she soaks this in, even though she doesn't seem to be a great student, she soaks it in and 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 it seems to be a very charismatic uh, teacher, at least from the, from the descriptions. Yes. Yeah. Later she becomes a a very charismatic teacher herself. Um, And, but she's also very, she becomes so tied to her father, she and he loves taking her around. There's this wonderful scene I think I describe in the book where they're walking through the Prater district, which is this really very nice district in Vienna, and 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 Freud is sh- showing her these 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 beautiful houses. And he says, "You see those houses? The 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 beauty of the house on the outside may it may be deceptive." What's going on inside the house may be quite different. And that's the same thing with the human mind, with humans. So, uh, you know, it's a very evocative. Freud had a way of, of really speaking in a way that, you know, got you to picture things and, and you know, complex just, concepts that were very clear suddenly. That really struck me about, I mean, it's been a long time. Probably the only thing I've read about him is Civilization and Discontents or his lectures on psychoanalysis. I think we had to read his first year history students as an undergraduate. But what stri- it strikes me that his wonderful teaching style, also his wit. I, I gave an example of that in the introduction. He's such a witty man. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and he, as it were, playing around with some of the tenets of psychoanalysis too. Like I mean, when he says that when he's greeted in England, he says it seems like the nation has, a, has an episode of mass psychosis that, that, has a, that has a certain you know, ring when it comes from Freud. But yeah, yeah, so so she grows up and she has a great teacher in terms of psychoanalysis. She has a great teacher, and also not just by example. Freud, when when she starts teaching teaching kids in in a school at a very young age, you could then mm-hmm. do basically like student teaching, mm-hmm. and then she decides to to really go into psychoanalysis. And the first step in psychoanalysis in those days was, of course, to be psychoanalyzed yourself. That's how you learn to become a psycho. And who 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 psychoanalyzed her? Her father, <laughs> which as a future other psychoanalyst later said, that would not be considered kosher these days. But you know, for the father to psychoanalyze the daughter, and Freud himself later said, yeah, that's probably not the best model, but it worked with Anna. And uh-huh. so she really absorbed everything and then and then she never moved out of the house and he began to rely on her for for all sorts of things for and when he got sick then even the most basic things some of it although of course he had doctors and 
and also or all sorts of uh, help in other ways but she was the one who really took care of his daily needs he had this prosthesis which had to go in his jaw after the operation she was the only one who really knew how to get it in and out it was a very awkward painful process and then she begins to when he is no, no longer able to travel as much yeah he be, she begins to represent him at international congresses of psychoanalysis so she really becomes as if an extension of him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and uh so she's and then of course later on in life one of the most noted child psychologists uh, and 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 an authority in her own right but she until the end of her life she insisted on staying w- with her parents and also important to this is her a woman who seems to have, was her lifelong partner and companion seems to have been her wife in all but in all but name. Right, uh, they were essentially, and who, and who is that, and what does she bring to the? She, all these people are coming to Freud for analysis that we'll be talking about, and they end up kind of staying in a way yes. around in orbit. Yes, and here the woman you're talking about is Dorothy Burlingham slash Tiffany. Tiffany is no, no, this is the Tiffany family. Uh, her her grandfather Charles Tiffany was the founder of the Tiffany Company, the Tiffany Fortune. Her father was Louis Comfort Tiffany, who made all those gorgeous lamps and stained w- uh, uh, windows. Her, her brother uh, was killed at San Juan Hill in the Rough Riders. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's an interesting family, <laughs> a very interesting family. And Dorothy Burlingham had gotten, was married fairly young to a, to an American. Uh, who and she had four kids. Her husband was bipolar. They began to so they were, she was having less contact with him. She was worried about the mental health of her four children in the early twenties, and she hears about the Freuds, both Anna and and and, and Sigmund, and and asks whether she can be analyzed. She can bring her four kids to Vienna to be analyzed, and. Anna Freud takes that on. Sigmund Freud helps analyze Dorothy Burlingham for a while, then someone else does. But Anna and and Dorothy develop a very close relationship, which, as you say, effectively most people treated it almost like a marriage. Whether there are all sorts of theories, whether there there was you know how, how literally that was true, but certainly they were bound together for life and they would spend the rest of their lives together. And Dorothy as an American, again, brings another element to this circle that, I mean, first of all, she has, she has money, she has some resources. And later on, when it becomes important to have all that to, uh, to help uh, Freud get out of Vienna, she also plays a role. So, so this circle keeps gradually building up. So with some very, intriguing colorful figures yeah and dorothy has an apartment she buys an apartment or has an apartment rents an apartment in the same building as the freuds direct she, phone line to anna freud's bedroom i believe which yes is, i've actually and, seen that you can go if you go to the freud apartment which is now the freud museum in vienna oh, okay. uh, uh, on uh, you can see in anna's bedroom part of the wire coming down with what had been that line that went up to the fourth, fourth floor where Dorothy got her apartment so that she could be close to as close as possible to Anna. There wasn't room for her to move in then. It would be a little awkward, but, but they were constant companions. 
So, and, and that's very important that she's in the same building is very important to the, eventually the escape or the, the, the yes. how, how Freud gets out of Vienna. Um, William Bullitt, who I always have found fascinating, be, not just because he's from Philadelphia, um, mm-hmm. but and he's, he is sort of an eminent Philadelphian of a, of a variety, which is now extinct. Um, but he is another person who comes to Freud as psychotherapist uh, who be, before becoming then a co-author, could you explain that that story? Yes, yeah. I mean, all these connections. It's like these stories. Like for instance, William Bullitt is someone I I knew of and had written about some when he was amb- he was with the first U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union in the 1930s. But his backstory, as he said, he was from a very eminent Philadelphia family. He became a very successful journalist at a young age. Wrote a best-selling novel all of these things. And he had actually worked for Woodrow Wilson briefly uh, during during the Treaty of Versailles and then became very disillusioned with him. But the impulse for, for uh, Bullet to seek out Freud in the, in the 20s was he was at loose ends and his, his second marriage was falling apart. And by the way, his second marriage was to a woman named Louis Bryant, who had been, was the widow of John Reed, who had been uh, the chronicler of the Bolshevik Revolution. It's like, you know, you draw arrows to all of these characters and major events of that period, and they are all intersecting. And, and Bullet is, is, is very frustrated. There's some, some, some people claim that is, they are also major sexual problems impetus whatever who knows there's a lot of that there's a lot of that going around in this circle i I, I, having i i went to professor wikipedia to learn more about all these people and we we could we could it could have quite a quite a list of neuroses Uh, this is such a a mainline philadelphian story of the 1920s william bullet explained to his longtime friend and fellow philadelphian george biddle of course that he first decided to seek help after he nearly fell off a horse Yes. I guess fox hunting or something like that. But it's, uh, yeah. So yeah, and then, he, then he says, there's one guy who might be able to explain all this to me. He's in yeah. Vienna. His name's Sigmund Freud, and he goes to see him. And Freud, interestingly enough, at that point, uh, at first, uh, he, 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 whoever uh, opens the door says he's not receiving visitors, but he hears from upstairs who it is, and he recognizes the name, and he comes down and sees him. And then he consults. They have some sessions together. I don't think this this did, certainly did not sir, sir, save uh, a bullet's marriage, but the two hit it off, and they hit it off almost the most when Freud asked Bullet, "Well, what are you working on these days?" You know, he's sort of in between before his his new diplomatic career really takes off and all that. And Bullet says. I want to do a biography of all the major statesmen who were at Versailles, including Woodrow Wilson. And Freud says to him, oh, Woodrow Wilson. And I want to, I would cooperate with you on a, I'd like to write that with you together. And because they both hated Wilson at that point, they both thought he he had totally blown the Versailles peace treaty and created a situation that was horrible. And, and yeah, you know, Austria, Hungary had lost all this territory, empire. Right. So, so Freud is is, is a fascinating moment, and, and people. John Lukash wrote an essay about Bullet in his, uh, I think, book on yes. Philadelphians, and talks about this. Lukash, of course, from Budapest, 
uh, hates Woodrow Wilson for much the same reason that Freud does as, you know, sort of loyal Austro-Hungarians who see Wilson as the destroyer of the, you know, the peaceable empire. We could debate about that. Uh, Bullet, of course, is coming out like John Maynard Keynes. He's, he finds Wilson's pomposity and otherworldliness to be complete, to have allowed people like Lloyd George and Orlando of Italy and Clemenceau to have their way and to destroy the peace. So they are bringing different selections of Wilson hatred together to pull their resources, as it were. Yes, that's absolutely right. And when yeah, Bullet is totally startled by that the idea that that Freud wants to be the co-author of one chapter of his book. He said, "Are you kidding me? If I'm going to have Freud as a co-author, first of all, that should be the whole book and one subject, yeah. and we'll make it about Woodrow Wilson." And that's what they decided. It was not a very happy, successful venture. But why it wasn't it? Was, it? was Freud a difficult co-author, or was Bullet? Well, no, I mean, I mean Wilson. Uh, yeah, Bullet did most of the writing and work, although Freud did some. But there were they had all sorts of they had some disagreements about what uh, Freud had a tendency to put in his sort of what Bullet considered to be extraneous theories, a little bit too explicitly sexual in some cases in there that made Bullet uncomfortable. And then the other thing was the book was really uh, devastatingly critical of the role of Wilson's wife, uh, Woodrow Wilson's second wife, that she had been domineering, that he was totally, totally uh, manipulated by her. And she was still alive. Wilson was dead at that point, but she was, and they sort of decided they had, couldn't publish it while she was still around. So there were all sorts of delays and, 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 and they were both very, very sort of uh, stubborn men. And, and the book was not actually published until long, not only after, well, after Freud's death, but right, at, right when, when uh, Bullet died. It wasn't until the 1960s. But and it, and that it meant Wilson, going back and forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I presume Wilson was still revered in the 60s. I, I presume it wasn't well received at the time. Um, yeah, it wasn't well received, but I'm not sure it was only because he was Wilson had was uh, you know people were less critical of Wilson than they are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was yeah it's an interesting book, but it's not a if you read it it's not a very successful. You, book. you wouldn't recommend you've you've no doubt as part of your your duty to scholarship you probably had to to at least look into it. Oh yeah uh, yeah I've read it and you but know, you wouldn't you wouldn't recommend it. It's not, not, you know, it's, it's a bit of a curiosity that says yeah. more about Bullet and Freud than it does about Wilson. Uh, like a dog walking on its hind legs. <laughs> um, so uh, it's, it's amazing that it was done at all, that that was done well. Yeah. Uh, so the let's. I just say that, that, remember with Bullet, then he becomes ambassador of the Soviet Union, but then he becomes, a, in 1936, ambassador of France. And part of his duties, he's there until, until throughout the rest of Freud's life is to oversee the consulate in Vienna, uh, the embassy in Vienna at first, and then what becomes the legation. And he puts in one of his close friends to run that. And he becomes the liaison for, for keeping tabs once, once the Nazis come over and trying to, and showing the flag, literally 
that the Americans really care what they're, how Freud's going to be handled. And I believe one then one an American representative accompanies the Freuds as they leave Austria for Paris. Is that yes? Yeah. So that's it's very but but it's done. Is he he doesn't advertise it, but he's just there on the train enough to let them know. And for the jury, for the for the Nazis to know, there's an American observing what's happening here as he's yeah. getting out of Austria. Now we have one of the great. I have to say, is one it has to be one of the great overlooked characters of the 20th century, Marie Bonaparte. Yes. Where I just re- I just read that she sat next to François Mitterrand at the coronation of, of Elizabeth II, she and did. and they found it so boring that she said, "Why don't I show you how psychoanalysis works?" And so she did it. She analyzed him during the coronation ceremony. So there, yeah. there's that. Um, Marie Bonaparte, obviously, last name is significant here, uh, yes. but set her up for us. Yeah. Marie Bonaparte was the great grandniece of Napoleon. Her great grandfather was Napoleon's brother, Lucien Bonaparte. And, and she grew up in a family where her dad was very distant. Her, her mother had died fairly young. But they were, but they were very wealthy. More, not they had the famous name, but the wealth more from her, 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 uh, her mother's her, side. Her mother's, her grandfather de- was the developer of Monte Carlo. Yes, that's <laughs> that is that's what a combination, uh, you know, of, yeah. of Bonaparte and plus developer of Monte Carlo, Monaco. So that's yeah. she yeah. had she had some cash. She had some cash. But she also had talk about complexes, oh, talk my. about psychological issues. You know, she felt her her father was very protective of her, and felt that, and her grandmother, who was there, who was who was a rather severe woman, and they felt, oh, people are going to exploit the Bonaparte name. You got to protect her. She never was allowed to go to school. She only had tutors, and and then eventually, at a fairly young age, she is. Uh, the she is gets a proposal from the prince of Greece and Denmark, the son mm-hmm. of the the king of of Greece and Denmark, and this match is made more. It's, it's like an old fashioned kind of royal wedding. She agrees to it, but again, he he's he, he's someone who remains devoted to her in his own way, but very distant, distant sexually, and every other way. And she, in the meantime begins to discover herself as it were put in today's and become say an that. obsession of lovers uh, <laughs> the, uh, of the highest level of so, the highest level including yeah, that, Aristide Briand who had been premier of France multiple times and held every every group and so but like she, 20 or 30 years older than her which as she says when they begin the affair he could be my father which, yes you know, called paging Dr. Freud, you know, that's... Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. And she did page Dr. Freud. <laughs> she did. <laughs> she, she gets somebody to say, I got to get to this guy Freud because, you know, yeah, it looks like I've got all this going on, but, you know, ah, I I can't achieve orgasm. And, uh, and uh, she gets to Freud and Freud is absolutely taken with her that she he says after two or three weeks i can talk to you in a way i can't talk to anyone about myself he, too he loves a celebrity client there's no doubt yeah. about it yeah. he does like as long as they pay their fee i'm sure but, that, but that, yeah well that was a prerequisite he was very interested <laughs> on that yes but they but she does and she is becomes uh, an intellectual firehouse 
uh, fire that's the wrong word fireplace of the of the of the movement yes she she becomes not only after they she's analyzed and so forth she becomes you know, she, a, a psychoanalyst herself a writer uh, she writes about these issues she creates the Paris psychoanalytical society uh, and and she helps avert uh, bankruptcy of of the 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 publishing house in Vienna, which which had been publishing all the works of Freud and and his most most important followers, so she becomes a powerhouse of this movement, the yeah. way Ernest Jones does in in London. And it's it's very strategic. So here we have a wealthy, noble woman who's really smart and is French speaking. So we've got yeah. like now we've got an, a French speaking sort of uh, center of yes. the psychoanalytical uh, movement. And she's also, I should say, she's providing refuge to lots of members of her own extended family, including the future Duke of Edinburgh, the recently deceased Prince Philip of Greece. Yes. Um, and and then lots of other refugees from Central Europe as Hitler takes over and eventually yes. Freud himself. Um, right. So she, she's, she's, she's fascinating. She's uh, she fascinating. Just- and I should just briefly mention one other thing they have in common, which they bond over, dogs. They were both. She was introduced to. First of all, Dorothy Burlingham had given given Freud his first dog, his own dog, uh, a Chow, and 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 Marie Bonaparte continued that tradition, gave him a Chow, and she had her own Chow. They 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 could talk about the psychological life of dogs (laughs) endlessly. Well, so uh, my wife and I, we are not psychoanalysts, but we spend a lot of time analyzing the psychological life of our dog, which is, which oh, is, I'm I, sure, I deep, deep, all the time, <laughs> deep and deep and rich. I mean, every dog owner thinks that. I, I have to say, I love that part. Uh, I, I thought you were probably a dog owner because Freud is like the, an adult convert to dog owning, and yes. there's there's some of the worst. There's some of the yes. biggest <laughs> addicts. Yeah, he was a tremendous addict. Um, let's finish up uh, in this circle with Max Shore. Yes. Um, who is Freud's last doctor. Um, uh, but what I found very moving uh, through the, sh- as it were, the shore perspective is Freud as a patient who's not the greatest. <laughs> He's, uh, uh, you don't want to have a doctor as a patient most of the time. And, but what Freud is really interesting, though, is a sufferer. Um, I, I find Freud very interesting in his suffering. So could we could we talk a little bit about Shore and and how he dealt with with Freud as a friend yeah, well, and as a sufferer? First of all, Shore was much younger than Freud, and that was one of his 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 attributes that was was a good thing. And you know, Freud had had, had various doctor surgeons that had worked on him, and in fact, it was Marie Bonaparte who first met Max Shore when he was a, still a medical student and and had some tests done. And found out that Max Schur was very interested in psychology. Had even attended some of Freud's lectures as a student at at, at the University of Vienna, and she thought he had a great bedside manner and all that. And he and she told Freud, "Look, you need one doctor who can organize all this stuff going on with you because you've got several issues." And and he interviews Schur. He likes him. And they, and he said, I, you, I've got to, basically the idea is manage the sufferings uh, with the pain from the cancer so I can keep working as long as I can. But he says one thing, once it becomes unbearable, you have to make me a promise. 
you're going to help me end it. And Shur agrees to that. And they all, and so Shur becomes the last 10 years of his life becomes a, a constant in his life. And he, and he, he's there to help with the care, but also really discuss almost everything, everything going on in his life. He's, he's a very dedicated and sure recognizes much earlier than Freud, the danger they're all in because sure is also Jewish. The other members of that circle we've talked about were not Jewish mostly except for Anna Freud, of course, but sure was Jewish. And he, in 1937, applies and manages to get U.S. visas through a maneuver about where he was born and so forth for him and his young family, but then holds off on going because Freud's not going. Uh And, And he actually then also goes all the way to London with him. So sure is, is it a key figure here. And by the way, one of the things about all the interconnections, uh, there's when I was researching this, Max Schur died in, in the seven, early 70s. But I s- discovered that Peter Schur, his son, was teaching at the Harvard Medical School. <laughs> and he's in Boston and had a practice in, in, in one of the Boston hospitals. When I, this was a, a, a couple of years ago, and I, I see him listed still on, as, a, as a doctor. And he, at that point, he's, he's close to 90. And I call his office and I get the usual voicemail, you know, if, 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 tell us what you're, what, 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 what's bothering you, why are you calling? And I ex- explain, I leave a voicemail that I'm not not calling to be a patient, but I'm calling to talk to Peter Schur, whose who's father I'm writing about. Nothing happens. I think probably this is a long shot that I, I, I leave one more message. And then the following night, I get a call. This is Dr. Peter Schur. Yes, I remember my meetings with Freud as a child and all this. So it's, it, is, it is incredible when those, those things happen when you're researching a book. Can you tell uh, listeners what memento Peter Schur has of Freud? Yeah. When uh, yeah, Peter Schur was, was born, uh, this was 1933, uh, he, Freud gave Max Schur, his dad, gold gold Austrian coin. And he said, this will be a memento for your son to pass on. And, <laughs> and he, you know, he passed it on and he passed and Peter sure has, has his own children. I think he, had, he told me last time we talked, I think that in the end he decided to, I think to, to, to it had been with his children to put it in the library of Congress with the Freud collection, because huh. the, most people don't realize the fullest archive of Freud's letters, papers, and so forth are, are at the Library of Congress. I wanted to ask you about that because one of the interesting things, I mean, Freud famously came to the United States for to speak at, at Clark University. That's his, the lectures on psychoanalysis. Uh, but he was an Anglophile and a bit of an American, well, actually not a bit, an Americanophobe. Uh, yes. Max Shore had a very different view of America. How did Freud pay, Freud's papers uh, end up in the Library of Congress, other than money? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how that all happened. I haven't really studied, but, but Marie Bonaparte's papers ended up there too. And okay. Anna Freud was not a, a 
Freud, as you say, Sigmund Freud, had went to the States only once. He had a very negative impression. He had lots of American followers and financiers and so forth, but yet he would say, oh, they're too materialistic. They're too shallow. And he had a almost very typical sort of continental European disdain for this primitive culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a child of European immigrants, I've seen a lot of that myself. <laughs> uh, and, 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 but Anna Freud did not have that. She came yeah. and lectured often in the States uh, and and had a very good relationship with people like Robert Coles, uh, and the 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 famous American child psychologist. Uh, so I I I don't I don't know the whole background of that how they all ended up there, but I suspect Anna Freud, Marie Bonaparte may have all played played a role. Um, I, I what I here's some questions I wanted to ask you that aren't related to the, the subject of this book, but very briefly. Um, you're like the first reporter turned historian I've talked to for a while, or maybe ever. I'm not sure. Yet most of the history people read is written by either current people currently serving as reporters or retired reporters. Um, that bothers a lot of historians. Uh, I figure you guys write better, and also you make deadlines. And so those are two enormous advantages. Uh, if, if historians write, a hundred thousand words a, 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 a year for like five years or so, they would probably get be better writers too. If I did that, I'd be a better writer. Um, so you had a lot of practice and the deadline thing is really important. Just ask any publisher um, yeah. and not waiting for inspiration. Also that's, that's after, after that gets kicked out of you. Um, that's very helpful too. So those are advantages, but what, what, what sort of advantages do you think the life of a reporter brings to approaching history? Well, first of all, I think it's, I always feel that I I was a history major. I wasn't sure which direction I'd go after college. And I went into, ended up going into journalism, but I was always fascinated by the, let us say the historical stories that were current stories, the controversies when I was in Germany or Austria or Poland about how you dealt with the history of World War II and because you, you you reported the Waldheim story, right? and I reported the Kurt Waldheim story, yeah. who of course was Secretary General of the UN, and then ran for President of Austria, having quote unquote forgotten a little bit of his biography, working for a, a, a in 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 the in the Wehrmacht in the German Army during World War II. Uh, so I was always intrigued by those stories, uh, partly because. Yeah, my own my own father was in the Polish army in World War II and then escaped and then and then was served in Polish forces under British command. So I grew up with this whole layers and layers of of family stories and history never felt impersonal to me. And I think if if that's one thing that I think I'd say any good historian or any good journalist will do, and maybe a journalist a little bit more, is bring in the personal stories and the sense that my feeling was that there was nothing inevitable about the course of history. You know, when you look at the early days of Hitler, for instance, uh, as I did in Hitlerland, that could have gone any number of directions. And therefore, when and when I covered the end of the Cold War in the 80s and the Soviet Union and, and the collapse of communism, it wasn't as if this was all you know, preordained. And so looking at the forces and the pe- people and how these things came together to produce this result 
was part of my job as a journalist and then putting it back a little bit in time that we're all intrigued, I think, by the 20s and the 30s because it's not only how could Germany have become what it became, but how mm. could humanity have ever produced these sorts of results? So this is also, not to overuse a term, psycho human psychology, uh, that, that is endlessly intriguing, sometimes maybe a little morbidly so, but uh, you know, what is the choices we make, the way we, we conform or don't conform, uh, and what could have turned out differently. So I think, and, but I've always, what I've found the most intriguing in my books is, you know, in terms of just the process of researching and writing them, is finally discovering the people there and, and trying to bring them, and not to judge them in retrospect, but really to put the, put the reader in the situation of these people, get to see them, and then you can draw whatever conclusions you want, but not to sort of summarily say this person was right about this, that wrong about that, but but just see how how this all unfolded. So that's very interesting because the reporters I've observed in action really seem to enjoy talking to people. Yes, and so and I, I suspect if you don't do that, you've got a very strange repertorial career, just yeah. to be able to talk to people. But I, I'm I also know, given where you reported and when you reported, you talk to a lot of people that are really distasteful. Oh yes, on some level, yeah. But yeah. at the same time, you like talking to people, and distasteful people can be charming. Uh, you might and you might have to pull yourself back after talking to. I can see that this is a very useful skill for also talking to people who are long dead, but who are both can be both charming and distasteful and wrong or evil, but interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I reported also from Russia extensively and met all sorts of people who, you know, were, as you say, put it mildly distasteful, but it was also uh, always fascinating to see the kind of reasoning self-rationalizations that came together. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, yeah, and as you say, of course, whenever possible, I talk to people. And so when in my earlier books, uh, which were more set in World War II, I could still talk to any number of people who were direct participants, people who fought in the Battle of Moscow on both sides, in the Russians and, and, and Germans. But with this book, there was less of that, obviously, because of the passage of time. Although, you know, there were occasional exceptions like uh, the, the son of Max Schur, but but that but on the other hand if you can get the next best thing is diaries letters so forth we are which are describing it says i felt i was almost talking to hearing these discussions between freud and his circle of and close friends like marie bonaparte ernest jones he had their massive collections of letters between all these people and and, and, and then and then some of their their own accounts of it. And it felt like I was eavesdropping on some of these conversations. And that's the stuff that often is the most revealing rather than just the straight kind of, let us say, more routine record that they they met at such and such a time. They had this 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 decision about psychoanalysis or what to do about the Berlin uh, circle when Hitler was taking over. But the internal discussions were fascinating. 
My guest today has been Andrew Nagorski. He's the author of Saving Freud, The Rescuers Who Brought Him to Freedom. Andrew Nagorski, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. My pleasure. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 